And in this little article on Berlin's new church of nothing, he talks about this church that is now being constructed on the foundation of an old church that had been demolished. And in this article, as he talks about this new church of nothing, which is called the house of one, he explains that, that this new church was being constructed, has been under construction for a couple of years. It's going to finish in 2025. He said that the way it's constructed is there are actually three sanctuaries, one for Jews, one for Muslims, one for Christians, but they're all under one roof. And in the middle of these different sanctuaries is this public place of gathering. And the whole idea of putting all of these different faiths under one roof is this celebration of unity in the midst of diversity and multiculturalism and and all of the rest. It's very much the kind of place that seems to be propagating the woke view that a lot of people have concerning America's cultural future, and that is secular religion. I want to read just a little bit to you from... Uh, one of the people who contributed to the uh, the building of this house of one, his name is Ro- Roland Stolt, and uh, he's a, a theologian. And he says, East Berlin is a very secular place. Religious institutions have to find new language and ways to be relevant and make connections. In other words, religion has to conform, not change, the secular spirit around it. Now, the author of this article in the Wall Street Journal goes on to explain uh, that the the divinities being worshipped are not Yahweh, Jesus, or Allah, but diversity, multiculturalism, and inclusion. See, the house of one embodies a very familiar secular spirit that doubts the relevance or contributions of religion. In fact, it actually would say religion just might be destructive to human progress and human identity. The author of the article concludes along these lines. He says, replacing eternal transcendent values with immediate political ones often brings tyranny and authoritarianism. Americans see that now in the left's hypersensitive tyranny embodied by cancel culture and hostility toward conservative religious ethics. East Berliners saw it for 45 years under communist domination. We are living in an age of tolerance. How many of y'all have noticed that? Does anybody notice that? We're living in an age of tolerance and inclusion, and, and that sounds good. I mean, who wants to be intolerant? Who wants to be exclusive? But have you kind of wondered every once in a while, maybe the church or maybe Christians have gotten, I don't know, a little off track. Have we gone off the rails in some respect or another? It seems like things have gotten a little weird, maybe even a little bit dangerous. Fortunately, the Apostle Paul does, in the Scripture, address this concern of tolerance. And the interesting thing about Paul in the letters that we're going to look at today is he actually suggests to us that there is a there's a characteristic or a quality that when you are a mature Christian, you have this quality that goes beyond mere tolerance. And I would just call it broadly cross-shaped or cross-empowered acceptance. But before we get into all of this, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. The texts this morning are 1 Corinthians 
chapter 8, verses 4 through 11, and then also Romans chapter 1, verses, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Okay, now let's continue with Romans chapter 15. For we who are strong ought to bear with the failings or weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the spirit, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among you, among yourselves as you follow Christ, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And then here's a bonus round, 1 Corinthians thirteen seven: Love always protects, always hopes. May God bless Williams where you may be seated. Uh, now, obviously, tolerance is kind of a thing in our day. Uh, and it would seem that in some circles, the only absolute left is that there are no absolutes. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas, who is a theologian, said that when it comes to his liberal theological friends, that they are very, very in- inclusive. They're very intent to include all religious points of view, except for those points of view that don't intentionally include all points of view. Which means in the final analysis, the liberalism, he says, of his liberal friends is the most narrow view you could possibly imagine because they include only one view, and that is that all views are equal. It's an anti-truth kind of a, a sentiment. And that's why things have gotten a little bit weird. Uh, you, you know, you've got to accept my truth, and my truth is there's no truth except for my truth which most people see as a naked power play, but a lot of people are kind of confused by this. We live in some really, really funny times when it comes to talking about tolerance. And we get nervous because we see sometimes that people who talk about the tolerance are are using that as a shield to advance their own particular political or personal agendas. It makes us nervous. We should be nervous. But like I said, Paul gives us some great advice, some good insight with regards to what it is that as believers we ought to be displaying in our lives, and that is something that goes above and beyond regular tolerance as the world talks about it. And so this morning, we're just going to be talking about this cross-shaped, gospel-shaped acceptance 
And I want to talk about what it is not, and then we're going to talk about what it is, and then we're going to talk about how it is that we could possibly be empowered to live in such a challenging, otherworldly way. All right, so let's, before we get into that, though, let's understand the passages that we just read. In these two passages, the, the, the letter to Corinth, the letter to, to Rome, Paul is addressing essentially the same thing, only there are slight variations or slight differences. When Paul writes to Rome, he's dealing with some people there who are, who are convinced, some Christians who are convinced that all Christians ought to live and eat according to Jewish law. They all ought to eat kosher. And so these Christians who said everybody's got to eat kosher were saying, and if you don't eat kosher, if you're not abstaining from pork and all the rest, we can't eat with you. Stay away. So they were creating distance between themselves and others within the church. And, of course, that created more distance between themselves and the rest of the world because of the dietary restrictions and laws. There's the judgment and the condemnation. We have the truth. You don't have the truth. We can't have anything to do with you. We can't sit at the same table. Same sort of thing is happening in Corinth, uh, just a little bit different. In Corinth, we're not talking about Jewish legalism. What we're talking about there are people who came out of a pagan background. And so these people who came out of a pagan background who are now Christians said, no Christians should eat any meat that had been sacrificed or blessed in the name of these pagan deities, whether it be Apollos or Athena or Pikachu or Kanye West or whatever the uh, the gods were. said, so, no, we're not, you can't eat any of that any of that food, okay, it's, it's been sacrificed or blessed by these false gods. And the, the Christians in Corinth would say, so we can't eat with you unless you eat the way that we eat, unless your convictions are the same as our convictions. And so there is a distance between those moralist Christians and those who said, I don't have a problem with eating meat. And then there was also a distance between those Christians who said, we're, we're not going to eat the meat and the, the rest of the world because everybody in the society ate meat. So there's all these little divisions that are happening. Now, when it comes to Rome and when it comes to Corinth, Paul says there are two parties here who are involved. There are two groups of people. There are, I'm just going to put them right here. There are the weak and then there are the strong. And the weak are sometimes called the weak brothers or those who are weak in conscience or the, those who are weak in faith. They're, they're the weak in, in Rome and in Corinth. Now, it gets a little bit confusing because when Paul talks about the weak in conscience, we think we know what he means, but we don't know what he means because we use weak in conscience different than Paul used it. And what I mean is, typically, if we say somebody has a weak conscience, we mean it's underactive. We mean that this person has done wrong, this, this person has done a bad thing, and they've hurt somebody, and they don't even feel guilty about it. That person has a weak conscience. That's how we would use it. That they've got a broken moral compass. That's not how Paul uses weak conscience. The way Paul uses weak or weak conscience in Romans and in 1 Corinthians is a conscience that is not strong enough to defend oneself from feeling guilty when you're not actually guilty and you haven't done anything wrong. If you have a weak conscience, it's because you're not oriented thoroughly enough to the love and the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, you would feel guilty or feel, you know, like violated, even though you didn't do anything wrong. That's a weak conscience. The person with the weak conscience is the person who needs to have everything evaluated in black and white. They have to have the whole list of rules. There's no, there's no room for, for ambiguity. There's no room for the gray because they have the weak conscience. Now, like some of you, I grew up in a church that maybe had this unspoken rule of thumb. And the unspoken rule of thumb was 
The longer your list of rules, the closer you are to Jesus. That's not in the Bible. And some of us, we grew up in churches that basically said the more uptight you are, the more spiritual you must be. That also is not exactly in the Bible. That's the person with a weak conscience. Now, the person with a strong conscience, Paul says, I'm one of those people. He lets us know, I've got a strong conscience. The people with a strong conscience are, are different. The people with a strong conscience, he says over, I think it's in Romans chapter 15, he says, we who are strong. So Paul includes himself as the people who are strong. And then he tells us exactly what that is. If you look over at another passage, this is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, verse, if I get ahead, verse 17. He says, some people are they're so accustomed. This is about the weak conscience. Let me just go back a little bit. Some people are so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. But since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. See, their conscience isn't strong enough to defend them. But Paul, on the other side of the equation, says, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all. That is to say, the strong were the ones who were not like the superstitious in Corinth who had the scruples over eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. The strong were not like the religious legalists in Rome who said, no, we're only going to eat kosher. They only had the kosher scruples. The strong were the ones who didn't have to have everything spilled out. They didn't have to have somebody outside of them judging if this is right and this is wrong because their conscience would defend them because they were okay with the gray area. They had, they had room for some ambiguity tolerance. Okay, so Paul says, I'm strong, the others are weak. Or I'm among the strong and the others are weak. Now you might say, so is Paul condemning the people who are weak? Is, is, is the First Corinthians 8 and Romans chapter 15 or Romans chapter 14 and 15, is that really Paul saying the weak are the bad people? Not really. Now nobody wants to be called weak. You don't want to not know the truth. You don't want a conscience that isn't strong enough to defend you when you need to be defended. That's not a good thing to have a weak conscience or to be somebody weak in faith. That's not good. But the majority of Paul's emphasis and force is not against those who are weak in conscience because they're just immature. The majority of Paul's force is against the people who are strong. So why would that be? Well, because the strong are hurting the weak. It's better to not have strength at all than to be strong and to brutalize the weak with your strength. I mean, who's worse? The baby crying for no reason or the adult who has the strength to abuse the child? Well, well, it's the adult. Absolutely. If you're the strong person, if you're the adult in the room, you better not use your strength to hurt the weak. That's the Apostle Paul's direction here. But here's the problem, and here's why this is also incredibly relevant, and I want, I want to get this set up for you. On both sides of the equation, nobody wants to have anything to do with each other, okay? Over here, you've got the traditionalists, okay, the moralists. And the traditionalists or the moralists, they say, look, we don't want to have anything to do with you pork eaters. You know, we know it's bad to eat in Rome. We know it's bad to eat non-Jewish food, and, and we don't have anything to do with you pork eaters, and then for the people in Corinth, it's like, hey, we know we don't want to eat that food that was sacrificed to, to Pikachu and Kanye West. And so here's what we're going to do. We're not going to eat with you. Okay, we have nothing to do with you. Stay over there in your corner. And then over here, the strong were saying, you think you have the truth? Well, we know we have the truth. And since we know we have the truth, we don't have anything to do with you because we're not going to adjust for you. 
We're not going to adjust for you. We're not going to adjust for you. And on both sides of the aisle, you've got people who are not relating to one another. But the greatest sin in all of this is not knowing the truth. It's refusing to relate when you should know better. What's the greatest sin? Not knowing the rules or choosing distance between yourself and other people that God has called you to influence. There's a proportionality about things. But this all sounds incredibly contemporary because, again, let me just let me just throw this out at you. The ancient problem and the modern problem. Neither side is truly accepting the other. Neither side is relating to the other. Neither side is truly respecting the other. Does that sound familiar? Not just in churches. Does that sound familiar? Absolutely. So this is incredibly relevant. But here's what I want to drive home to you. Everybody's an exclusivist. They just don't own it. There isn't, there's not a single situation in this society outside of the realm of the gospel of Jesus Christ where you can say, oh yeah, yeah, they're really being inclusive. No, they're not. Let me explain this again. Let me go back to the traditionalists, okay? And this is what we see happening in our culture. Here's the traditionalists over here. We know the truth. And uh, because we know the truth, we're going to exclude you. See, there's, there's three ways of excluding. One is expulsion, and the other is subjugation. Let me cover those. That's the traditionalist side of the equation. If you're a traditionalist, you say, I know the truth. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I'm doing what's right. I'm doing what's wrong. And since you don't know the truth, since you're wrong or you're doing wrong, you just stay over there. You go over there, stay over there. Expulsion. There's actually another way that, that that exclusion happens, and that's called subjugation. We do what's right. We know what's right. Y'all don't. We will have a relationship with you if you'll put yourself under our feet. We're not going to sit at the same table, but you guys can be our servants. You can be our butlers. As long as you're under our power, we can have something to do with one another. So that's the traditional way, which, by the way, let me just make this real plain before we, we go any further so I don't lose anybody. Being a traditionalist is not the same as being Christian. Now, we say there's right and wrong. There's a right, there are right things to believe. There's wrong things. There's right things to do, wrong things to do. But Christians go beyond just mere traditionalists. Because while we are intolerant of error, we are tolerant of people. While we don't, while we don't accept error, we do accept people. Okay? You're tolerant of the erring. You're not tolerant of the error. Unfortunately, throughout Christian history, there have been a lot of people that have named the name of Christianity and they've not tolerated the error, nor have they tolerated the people. Since you're wrong, or since you do wrong, I want nothing to do with you or you just get subjected to me. That's a poor representation of Jesus. And this is why sometimes people have such a hard time with the church because they think, oh, to be a Christian means you're either expulsion-oriented or subjugation-oriented. Neither of those have anything to do with Jesus. Let me put it to you a little bit differently. Shelby, can you bring me, I, I think my, is my phone over there? I should have brought that up here. I just got that, no, please don't throw that. Or you're, ex, or you are dead to me. You're excluded for a lot. Thank you very much. All right, sorry. Yes, I'm a hypocrite. Okay. Uh, I, I, I have a friend who's was a part of the association, no longer a part of the association, because he just kind of went off the rails, okay? And, but he's my friend. And every time I see his little post, it just oh, it just chaps me, but I love him. I'm not going to tell you who he is. He's a pastor. He said, I'm going to prioritize love. All right. 
above doctrine and dogma, above theology and ideology. I'm going to prioritize love. Ugh, you know, I just don't have time to respond to this. But here's why I go, Ugh, I love love, but you know what? I love truth too. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you hate truth, you don't like people because truth helps people. In fact, it's the nature of love to love truth. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it delights in the truth. You can love people and love truth at the same time. There's not a conflict between the two. And that's why, as Christians, we are intolerant toward error because truth matters. But we're always tolerant toward people beyond tolerant accepting. That's why the traditional moralist thing is oftentimes gets cast as Christianity. It doesn't really have much to do with Jesus. If you're so pro-truth and you hate people, you don't understand Jesus. Okay? So that's the traditional side. Now, over here on the, you know, the, you know, modern 21st century, we're, we're tolerant. Okay? Now, let's press into this a little bit. On the other side, there's another way of excluding, and it's so sneaky, but here's what, it's called assimilation. Expulsion and subjugation over here, assimilation. Remember the Borg? How many of y'all ever watched Star Trek and the Borg? Okay. The Borg was this, this group of people and they'd always say, well, they weren't people, they were something else, but the Borg would say, uh, what is it? Resistance is futile. Prepare to be assimilated. And the, and the way that assimilation works is you say, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be a part of you. We want to be together forever as long as you first become exactly like me. As long as you become exactly like us. In fact, we're going to help you to become just like us, and we don't even feel bad about forcing you to become just like us because you're a lower life form. That's assimilation. Now, let me, let me spell this out like in contemporary terms because I think most of you understand this, but let me just spell it out. Here in the 21st century, we have a number of people, and they're right. There's truth and there's error. There's right and wrong. There's absolutes that are outside of us, above us. There are certain things that you should do, and there are certain things you shouldn't do. And that's not just Christians. It's just like a Judeo-Christian values. It goes all the way back to, you know, Plato and Jesus and all the rest. And there's just a lot of people say there's right and wrong in our world. The traditionalists. And that seems to be exclusive to a lot of people because that it doesn't mean that just because I believe there's truth, I don't want to have anything to do with you, but... That's the traditional side. It seems exclusivist, but over here, oh, but we're so inclusive. It seems nice until they start to say, now you have your truth and we have ours, and our truth is there's no truth. And we want to have a relationship with you as long as you understand that there's no such thing as absolute truth. We want to be in a relationship with one another, but you've got to ditch this whole thing of there being truth outside of yourself. See, you think you have the truth. We actually have the truth, and the truth is no truth. But if you could simply acknowledge that all truth is socially or personally constructed, that'd be great. You know, we're going to get along as long as you all could be relatives like us. If you could just be relative toward the truth like us, we're all going to get along. This is every bit as brutal, every bit as exclusivistic as this. Here's my point. Whether you're the old school exclusivist or the new school inclusivist, everybody's exclusive. In this world, you're always going to have... This group and this group, always the others, always a divide between. It's a depressing situation. Again, let's get back to this. Neither side is truly accepting of the other. Here's the problems. Neither side is truly relating to the other. Neither side is truly respecting the other. 
You see the problem? Is that clear enough? What the world needs is something that the world does not have. Now, the good news is Jesus gives us what the world needs. He gives us acceptance, not at the, not in spite of truth, but he gives us acceptance with the truth that we are more broken, more shattered, more sinful than we could have ever imagined, but we are more loved than we could ever imagine as well. That's the gospel. That's what we remember here. How do we accept one another? Here's what the Bible tells us to do. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now I want to think, I want to think this through for just a second. Because when it says accept one another, what does that mean? Here's what a lot of people do. Well, you know, what are you going to do? I got to accept it. Like, all right, I accept that this is the situation. Is that it? No. We understand a little bit better the word acceptance uh, not just pouring into the Greek, but you can look at other contexts. In fact, over in uh, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14, verse 1, Paul says, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Because even within the church, there's core truths, there's disputable truths. There's things that are essential, there's things that are not. And, and Paul is saying, look, I know as a strong person that they're wrong. I know as the person who's strong in conscience that they don't know. But... In spite of the fact that they might be wrong, wrong about God, wrong about life, wrong about their actions, just even though that's true, here's what I'm still going to do. I'm going to accept them. I can pass evaluation on the truth, but that doesn't mean simply because they are in error that I don't want to have anything to do with them. I'm going to sacrificially enter into their lives even if they don't know the truth because that's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. And Jesus didn't love you and me after we came over to his side. Or after we got under his feet. And Jesus didn't love us after we assimilated into the body. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You love and you accept even if they never come around. Because you can love someone and then be in error. You can love someone and they don't see the truth. You can love someone and they're in another camp. Them being in another camp with regards to their actions or their apprehension of the truth has nothing to do with you accepting them or rejecting them. That is something that the world does not offer because it comes to us specifically through Jesus. And the acceptance isn't just, well, you know, what are you going to do? Go along, get along. No, no, no. The, the word that's used here is proslambano and it means to gather or to pull close. That is to say, the acceptance that we give to those who think differently than us or even live differently than us, the acceptance that we give is not, well, you know, what are you going to do? The acceptance is this. The acceptance is you reach out and you bring them close. There's another powerful statement in, in all of this. It's over in Romans chapter 15, verse 1. Paul puts it a little bit differently. He says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings or the weakness of the weak. Again, the translation doesn't just carry how, it really doesn't carry how radical this is. Because the bear with me is, well, you put up with it. You know, you put up with a lot of stuff because you don't have a choice. That's not this. Bear with means that you enter in under. How do you do this? How do you get in underneath the, the weakness so as to embrace the weak? You bear the weakness of the weak. Well, here, here's, here's how you do it. Intellectually, first of all, you can bear with people intellectually. That is to say, you understand where they're coming from. You can understand their positions, 
Or you can just think, hey, if I, if I were raised in that situation or I had that home life or I, if I were in that religion and all the rest, I can see what they're seeing. You try to get their perspective on the matter or see where they're coming from. It takes a little bit of effort to do that. But the other is not just intellectually do you identify with their weakness, but personally you enter into their weakness and you bear with them. And this is, this is so hard because it requires several things. It requires sacrifice. It requires... Uh, adjustment of your life, it requires a, a lot of inconvenience to you. And this is why what Jesus offers is so unlike the rest of the world because naturally, here's what I want to do and here's what you want to do. We don't want to adjust our lives. We don't want inconvenience. Here's what I want to do. I want to be with the people who are just like me because it's easier And there are things that make it really easy to cocoon with other people who are just like you. It's called the Internet. You can choose what rooms you want to be in the chat. You can friend or unfriend people. You can you can just kind of be in your own little silo of influence and just not mess around with all those high-maintenance people who are so unlike you. Right? It's not natural to do what Jesus does. It's actually supernatural. Let me just talk through different ways that we would be making space for other people or the sacrifice involved. Four ways to make space in your life for the person who's on the other side of the aisle. Number one, you make space for that other person by taking time to understand them. You make space, number two, in your life by being willing to change. If If you're not open to actually being changed, you're not in a relationship. You're a salesman with a pitch. Okay. Number three, you make space by expecting to be misunderstood and your positions to be misconstrued. That's just going to happen. And then number four, you make space by being willing to honor the pace of God in their lives. God's going to bring them along as, as quickly or slowly as, as God's going to do it. But you, you're, you're just in relationship with them. You love them because you love them because you love them. You don't love them after they come over to your side or after they capitulate to your particular view of truth. You love them before. Like Jesus did for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not that I'm not concerned about people being included in the family of God. Like God, I want all people to be saved, all people to come to repentance, come to a knowledge of the truth. But can you love people even if they're misjudging God, misjudging you, misjudging the truth, living in a lifestyle that is contrary to Christ? Can you just love them because Jesus died for them, period? It's not easy. Some of y'all have heard me talk about, and I'm going to wrap this up real quick. Uh, some of y'all heard me talk about this whole, you know, open door thing about getting believers together with unbelievers and just having conversations. You know why I think that's important? It's not just so we can be in a neutral environment and share the truth. I think it's real important for people to see the acceptance of Christ shining through. And for some of you, you have those opportunities where you work or in your neighborhood or in your school. You know you've got friends that are in some way or another on the other side of the aisle. Let me just encourage you, accept them. Not the error, but accept them. Then the love of Christ will be shining through. You understand what I mean? Now, some of you are saying, well, how in the world am I going to do this? It's real simple. It's not just that Jesus gives us an example or a set of do's and don'ts. How do you do this? You know, accept others just as Christ has accepted you. You just remember what he's done for you, and this is personal. What did Christ do for me? How did he accept me? When I was way on the other side of the aisle, 
God, who is perfect and perfectly right in all things, sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who is perfect and perfectly right. And He left His comfort zone and He adjusted His life so that I could come in. And, and there are no guarantees. The vast majority of the world, the Bible tells us, do not ever come to the truth. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God, God came without any guarantees that everybody's going to receive anything. He loves us before we ever respond to Him. He accepts us before we accept Him in return. That's what He did for me. Even when I was very different from Him, He accepted me. And I'm accepted by Him in the past, and I'm accepted by Him now, and I'm accepted by Him in the future, not because of anything that I do or have done, but because of His past and what He's done for me. That means I was accepted by God without any conditions. It's all on Him, not on me. Let me put it to you a little bit differently. In, in 1 Corinthians, it, it talks about how you, we're not any closer to God by what we eat. If you, if you eat, you're not closer. What you do not eat doesn't make you any further away. What does that mean? That means there's nothing that I could do today that is going to make God love me less tomorrow. There's nothing that I can do today that's going to make God love me more tomorrow. His love and His grace is absolutely thoroughly complete regardless of anything that I do or don't do. That's how grace works. It's all Jesus. It's none of me. Now, if God relates to me quite apart from the condition of my life, then I relate to other people quite apart from the condition of theirs. Only the gospel does that. Only the gospel does that. Now, you're saying, well, Ernest, does that mean that we're just light on sin? Absolutely not. Does that mean that we don't take error and and untruth seriously? Absolutely not. That's not what that means. The the cross of Jesus Christ also communicates we are so deeply sinful that nothing less than the death of God in Christ would do. We are more deeply sinful than we ever thought, more deeply flawed than we ever imagined, but we're also simultaneously in Christ Jesus more deeply loved than we ever imagined. That's the gospel. Tolerance for the erring, erring, not for the error. Entering in sacrificially into relationship with other people the same way that God absolutely sacrificially entered into a relationship with you and with me. Remember these things as we come to the table. And maybe as you come to the table, you might think about the person who just challenges you more than anybody else. And I want you to recognize that the distance between you and that other person that you perceive is nothing compared to the distance between you and God in your flesh, in your own righteousness. Let it hit you. Let it change you. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. We thank you that uh, you do love us and you love truth, and these things are not contrary to one another. They run along the same tracks. But, Lord, even when we were in error, even when we were wayward, even when we were wrong in our minds and our lives, you still sacrificially came and you lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. You love us that much. And you have constantly been reaching out, trying to embrace us, bring us closer, bring us closer, bring us closer. In fact, you so entered into our weakness that Paul elsewhere says that Christ became sin for us. You took on all of our weakness. We weren't even sharing in the burden. You took upon the entirety of the burden upon yourself. That's how much you love us. You love us so much that you were going to take that problem, it was a very real problem or a sin, and you dealt with it on the cross. You came, you suffered, you died, you rose again from the dead so that everything you had, we would now have. There is not a greater love than this. 
than, than to lay down a life for a friend. We didn't deserve to be called your friends. You made us your friends by what you did. You, you made us family by what you did. We weren't, it wasn't a brother dying for a brother. We became family because of what you've done for us. The, the acceptance of you toward us and the discomfort and the adjustments on your behalf are unlike anything you've ever requested or asked of anyone ever. And so, Lord, we see your example, but we also see your provision personally for us. This isn't just a theological notion. You did this for us. You accepted us before we ever responded. Please forgive us for withholding our acceptance and love toward other people. Please forgive us for confusing a, like a traditional religionist approach with the approach of Christ. And help us, Lord, in authentic, with an, with an authentic love to, to love and accept other people around us while also simultaneously caring enough to proclaim the truth in love. And God, if there are any here this morning who have yet to receive uh, Christ as Savior and Lord, I, I pray that you would just, uh, by your Spirit, draw them to yourself. Maybe someone here today would say, Lord, I know that I've sinned. It's not just that I've done wrong. I, I did the wrong knowing it to be wrong. And I don't even know what all the rules are, but I know this. I know it is appropriate to love you and to love other people. And there have been times where I've loved myself more than others around me. And there have been times I've actually hurt other people. I'm a sinner. It's not, so, not just that I did wrong. I'm wrong. There's something broken in me. But I also know, God, that you don't accept me on the basis of me doing this or that, eating this or not eating that. You accept me on the basis of Jesus who lived the perfect life, died the perfect death on my behalf, that I would be forgiven. And not just forgiven to be let go, but forgiven to be embraced, forgiven to be accepted, forgiven to be drawn tight to your breast. For you to be in my life from this day forward, for all eternity, bearing my burdens with me. And so, Lord, how could I say no to a God with that kind of acceptance and that kind of sacrifice? So, Lord, I don't really know all that goes with the, with the deal of being in a relationship with you. I just know this much. I want to I be in a relationship with a God like you. So right now I confess that I have sinned, that I've fallen short, but I also want to admit I know who my Savior is. It's Jesus. So right now, God, I accept Christ as my Savior and Lord. I pray that what he did on the cross for me would be applied to my life. God, thank you for saving me and help me just to, to know what it means to live the rest of my life in light of such a sacrificial, accepting Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.